dare give up and don't you dare give in and happy 420 day to our listeners at prn to the women's rights in the workplace show well deb i know you're playing a little dumb but you know 420 day um is the celebration uh, of cannabis in fact i think i had gotten you a ticket to the cannabis cup in colorado that i had to give away because you were busy this year um but i would have gone to if it were 30 years earlier and uh there was a way i could have done it um, so, welcome to all of our listeners. We have um, a, a show that may be on point, and if anyone wants to uh, speak with us, we are for the foreseeable future. Deborah and I will be uh, entertaining calls, free consultations, calls from all of our listeners, wherever you are from, with any issue related to the workplace. Um, hopefully, a women's rights issue, but it certainly can be anything with regard to any of the so-called protected categories otherwise, where you could ask us anything and we'll tell you on the air whether or not and how you may have some leverage and what you can do about your situation. Um, so if you've been struggling with or know anyone who is and who isn't these days right, dealing with workplace challenges, give us a call. You don't have to use your true name, clearly, or even your true company name. Um, but you know what? Many people have the same kind of questions. If you've been struggling with something, chances are it will help Others as well, right, Deb? You get the same questions over and over again. So feel free um, to give us a call and the number. So write it down uh, so that you can. I don't have it, actually. I thought I had it in front of me. Right in front of the phone. It's in front of the phone. Which phone? 888-874-4888. Say that again. 888-874-4888. Thank you very much. So you call up, and we will get you right on the air, no matter what we're talking about. But I wanted to just start talking a little bit today, and maybe, you know, if uh, anyone is interested, the fact that it is 420 day, do you know the the derivation, Deb, of that term? Well, only because Bill Maher explained it on Friday night show, talking about 420. But before you even go into that, um, I just wanted to acknowledge 415, Tax Day was also, uh, there were rallies and protests across the country in 236, 230-something cities. Fight for 15 because uh, restaurant workers, it's called uh, Rock United, Restaurant Opportunity mm-hmm. something United, um, the minimum wage for restaurant workers is $2.77, or the federal minimum wage is $2.13. So people who serve your food, make your food, bring you your food, make uh, are mostly live in poverty, and the majority of restaurant workers are women. So there is a big push right now for raising the minimum wage. So not only through restaurant workers who are really 
screwed in terms of how much they make because everybody believes that they are getting this 15% tip or 20, which is what you should be tipping, but that they are actually having to tip out so many people, the bartenders, the busboys, the cooks, the managers. In the, many cases, illegally many, the managers. And it's right. also illegal, but it doesn't matter because exactly. they still have to do it. Um, so these these people, you tip and you think they're getting it all, but in fact they don't. So there's a big push for it, and this was really a um, a national concerted effort um, to raise awareness for the fight for 15, because even though a number of cities, like New York included, is going up to 10.10, I think, or 10... Well, I, it's going up. It's still 8.75. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it's in a few more months yeah. close to 10.10, but still, 10.10 right. is not a living wage. Right. You really need, well, forget New York, just anywhere, 10.10 uh, is not a living wage. Right. So therefore, you really needs to go to 15. And that's what the fight for 15 is. So I just wanted to acknowledge that before we, and pay attention to it, and make it an issue in this upcoming election. Absolutely. In fact, if, if there is a candidate that doesn't acknowledge that we need to raise the minimum wage, that should be a candidate we all know that shouldn't be voted for. Right. So, um, thank you for that. That's true. Um, and we hope that one day, and perhaps the minimum wage will go up before marijuana is legalized in every state. Hopefully we'll have pay equity, a living wage, and health care will join the rest of the first world, so-called, and have health care as a right of living in this country. Um, in our lifetime, paid maternity before, leave? How about paid maternity leave as the, as the only right. country that doesn't do that? So we're so, um, you know, you know that we're... One of eight countries on the planet. I thought it's three. No, that's in the top 178 of industrialized. But when you look at the entire globe, because right. there's many more countries than 178, that we are one of eight. Oh, there's another five yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they're, you know, really bizarro little countries right. you've never right. really heard of, except for the United States. Right, exactly. Well, it's unbelievable. And I believe that in the latest United Nations report on, on sort of on gender equality, this past year, and I think it was just came out a few weeks ago, I believe we were nineteenth in infant mortality. I mean, we just yep. keep sliding down the scale. Yeah. So, so look in celebration of you know four twenty day. You know, many of us are enjoying and celebrating the fact that this plant that has really essentially has a safety record like no other plant or drug. Zero deaths. Zero deaths attributed to marijuana. Um, has enormous medical uh, usage, uh, medical, you know, medicinal uh, benefits, and and in here where there are now what three states? I think that there are three states finally where it is um, fully legalized: Oregon, the state of Washington, the state of Colorado, and a sprinkling of states increasing each year, including New York now, that has legalized marijuana use, which is still a Schedule One drug under federal law, same as heroin, cocaine. You know, crack cocaine, um, et cetera, in the word, uh, you know, and, and ecstasy, et cetera. Um, but in states like New York, where now has medical, uh, marijuana, it's increasingly difficult and extremely challenging. I think it's a very few, you have to have be, be essentially terminally ill and there are just 10 dispensaries. So it's, it's, it's becoming, um, it's, it's going quite slowly. But we still have how many people are in jail because of marijuana convictions. 
Do you know? And I'm going to tell you. Does anybody? Yeah, tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you because, but I just want to look here. We're going to talk because of this and because it's 420 day and because we had uh, a request from um, a, a listener, Ricardo, in New Mexico to do a criminal conviction discrimination show. We're doing that today. But also, you know, on the heels of today being 420 and some of us considering, you know, which favorite sativa strain we're going to go home and vaporize, there is still... Hundreds of thousands of people sitting in jail in stir still today, tonight, at 420, because of possession of marijuana, this harmless plant. And we have now a country where, um, you know, if you're sitting in a room with two other people, it's likely one of you was convicted of a crime. Because over the past 20 years, law enforcement in the United States has made more than a quarter of a billion a quarter of a billion arrests, according to the FBI. Um, as a result, there are now 77.7 million people in the United States on file, the FBI has in its master criminal database, which is nearly one out of every three American adults. Isn't that nuts? That's crazy. I mean, we, you know, we love us our penal system in this country, except, you know, at least for the 99% of us. I was, you know, it's those of us on, in a different tier are often not prosecuted for any crime. We're talking now about low-level, nonviolent drug offenses. I mean, we are, we are such incarceration enthusiasts that as of May 2014, the imprisonment rate in the United States was still the highest in the world, which it still is today in April 2015, at 716 people per 100,000 of the national population. We have only 4.4% of the world's population dead, but we have 22% of the world's prisoners. That's 2.3 million current American prisoners in jail. 2.3 million people in jail costing approximately, on average, $24,000 per inmate, and way more in places like New York is pushing $40,000 a year we taxpayers pay, which is which is more than $55 billion a year to keep people um, in, in jail. We're talking, we're talking real money. And in terms of um, both the raw numbers and the percentage of the population, we have the most prisoners in the U.S. There's another record, more American exceptionalism, than any other developed country in the world. And, 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 and in, in, in federal prison, more than half of those sentenced to more than a year in jail are in for drug crimes, so bad drug crimes. They're not, this isn't Scarface. We're talking about many of those people being arrested. They're usually the lower-level people that are busted for possession. And, of course, the racial disparities are obvious because... Right. Which will, which African-American is, and Hispanic. Exactly, which leads into what we'll be talking about because that's, that's part and parcel of criminal conviction discrimination is race and color because of who we arrest and who we prosecute and who we shoot in the back. Mm-hmm. So um, we we have so the the, the so if you're one of there's now I mean it's bad enough looking for a job as we know in America these days with the loss of our manufacturing base and all the reasons we've talked about and most people who follow uh, politics all the, middle, the news the good middle class jobs gone. Right? No right. middle class. We've got poor people who are, and it wasn't just tip workers, right? A lot of the people here in Manhattan and lying down in the street were simply fast food workers or yes. eight seventy-five an hour here cannot, and many on food stamps can't possibly pay any bills 
on minimum wage in New York or mostly anywhere else. And that is where corporate welfare comes in that people don't often look at. It's always right. the the Reagan, the right. welfare queens, and they look right. to finger finger individuals as being trying to rip off the government. Meanwhile, corporations can get away with underpaying right. their employees and the state, the federal government, the city, whomever will make up the difference. Exactly. And that is corporate welfare. Right. Something wrong with that? 22,000 companies in one building in the Cayman Islands not paying taxes. But anyway, let's go back to crimes. Um, so so if you're uh, there, the, um, I'm sorry, it'll be a challenging, a way more challenging job search for you if you have been arrested even or convicted of a crime. 92% of employers, Deb, they say, check criminal records when hiring these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, uh, and, and at least, uh, so if you're looking for work and if you have a criminal record, it's going to be completely challenging, but you do have some rights. So what are your rights if you have previously been arrested and or convicted of a crime, whether a misdemeanor or a felony, to employment in these United States? Well, first of all, under federal law, not a whole lot. There's some, there's some leverage you have, but it's not much. There's no law. There is no law in, this, in these United States that says you are protected from being refused employment or from being fired from your employment because once long time ago you were arrested for something that's completely even unrelated to the job you're applying for. Um, there are two laws that may apply. One is the law that we most mostly use in, in our work as plaintiffs, discrimination lawyers, employee rights attorneys, which is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, known as Title VII. Um, and that prohibits discrimination, that law, in every aspect of employment, including the screening practices, hiring practices, um, etc., for private and public employers. They can't discriminate on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, or religion, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, most people have heard of, is the federal administrative agency that's responsible for enforcement of Title VII. It's not a court, but it is the sort of prerequisite agency that you have to go to to file, and they're, you know, they're supposed to issue opinions and guidance to the courts and to the public and to employers on how to behave to be in harmony with um, and not run afoul of Title VII and the various federal anti-discrimination statute. So what the EEOC has said um, is that if employment policies exclude individuals based upon their criminal history, it may violate Title VII. It may violate the law because such policies disproportionate will impact, disproportionately will impact minorities who are arrested and convicted at significantly higher right. numbers in the population than their numbers in the population. That right. makes any sense at all. So, if an employer, employer, so if uh, if an employer, um, because arresting can incarceration rates are higher for people of color and Latinos, if an employer has a blanket policy of the, of excluding all applicants with a criminal record, it can be argued that it is guilty of race discrimination. But that, that's this kind of inferential argument by, by but, but, but proving that they failed to hire right, you. Right, which makes that 
incredibly, it's like almost impossible to it prove. It actually is almost impossible. Almost impossible, if not impossible. Right. Because a guy goes, because it's generally a guy, go, applies for a job. I mean, right. they call here all the time. Right. They're either denied the job or a criminal check comes back and they find out that they have some record and they get fired for it. Right. And I've been a manager of a store for 15 years. This was an old conviction, whatever it is. There really is, what's the protection for this guy? Well, there is no protection unless, as the EOC is suggesting and trying to be fair and trying to offer something halfway progressive that makes sense to most of us in this country, that perhaps know someone or are someone who is struggling with this sort of essential unfairness, it's supposed to be that if you don't get a job and your employer just says, sorry, you have a criminal record, but it's like you're another man of color with another criminal, just with this criminal record, that they're simply excluding you from... So the guy would have to prove that this company doesn't hire, that discriminated against him because of his race. Because of his race, not because of the criminal conviction itself so that it's therefore it is race based i'm saying this is that's the point is that right so it's it, race based but if there are other african american people working at this company bingo. right, right. Game, then over. game over game yeah. exactly. over exactly. no exactly. Exactly. you can't prove it even Very though difficult. you can tell by the story even though he was clearly discriminated against because of his criminal record well, right, but there's no law against there's that. No law. So, so that's where it becomes because it's so obviously unfair. And that's where it starts the whole cycle. People can't break out of this because they can't exactly. get a job. Exactly. Or the type of job exactly. that they get is really not a, you know, a right. valued exactly. position. And chances are the former criminal convict who is now applying for a job who didn't get it is not going to have the wherewithal, nor will it be worth it to a civil rights lawyer to bring that ca that case trying to prove race discrimination for an $8 an hour job. So it... it well, you I, can't even prove it. Well, you, you can't prove it. If it's very difficult to prove, it might be worth trying to prove it over and I'm over sure again. somewhere there's a class action suit somewhere, but it's finding it. Okay, so that's right. So this is so that's essentially the bad there, news. you got no, right. you got okay. no protection. Here's something else that's sort of bad news, but it's something that one should know. The second federal law that could prove helpful is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA. Why? This addresses the the FRCA, the issues of inaccurate criminal records. So criminal background checks. I mean, they have, you know, first of all, they of course may be errors. In fact, there often are errors, like there are if, as we've, we ever check our credit reports. There are errors all the time. Or they have something on there from 20 years ago, easy to get on, not so easy to get off. They don't bother right. with that, right. right, once you pay off the judgment. Um, so the, the, if, if, uh, if information on this credit report is a conviction that's already been expunged, which is a legal word for it was removed for various reasons, either because you were a youth at the time that you were arrested and convicted, or because a certain amount of time has gone by, or because you've gotten a relief from that conviction by a court, um, or, the, or it was sealed for various reasons. Um, there are duplicate listings or incomplete information. Um, you know, you're exonerated after trial, and that doesn't say. That's not, of course, reflected in the report ever. Um, though the charges against you were dropped by someone else, also not reflected often, misclassifications, or worst of all, that you have a criminal record attributed to you but it belongs to someone else with the same name. This 
rule, this act, this law requires and imposes obligations on employers who are requesting this information on these background checks and the firms that they request them from. They have obligations under the law. So they need to first get your written consent for, so you'll know in advance that they're doing it and they have to or it, it will undermine the utility of the report. They have to get your, under the law, your written consent. They must notify you if the employer intends to disqualify you based on their report contents. And the employer must give you a copy of the report, and they must notify you after they make a final decision not to hire you based on the information contained in the report. Also, the companies that run the background checks have an obligation to take reasonable steps. I know it probably doesn't mean anything, but they do have obligations to make sure that the information they provide is accurate and up-to-date. If you dispute the contents of the report in a timely fashion, um, the company must conduct a reasonable investigation into your claim. It's kind of like, as I mentioned, and true, I probably wouldn't have done it, but when you get one of those from a collection agency and you say, I don't know that, I don't even know why I owe $32 to Time Magazine, you write to them and say, explain this to me, I don't think I owe it. They often forget about the whole thing because they have to give you a detailed report of your failure to pay and it's not worth it for $32, so they will often drop it. Um, or they may drop it, but it's certainly worth holding them accountable. So if you if you uh, dispute the contents of the report, they must conduct a, a, an investigation, to rev- and which may reveal that the report is inaccurate. And then that company must inform you and the employer of the inaccuracy. Right? Good luck with that. But they're supposed to do that under the rules. You know, and they have to correct the information, and they have to try to undo the damage. So, you know, there's just something to know that if this is happening to you over and over, yes, if every time you hear that the report came back and is true, you were convicted of manslaughter two years ago, and it's accurate, there's not a whole lot you're going to do with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But to the extent that you keep getting this disproportionate harm from something that's old or innocuous or benign or shouldn't be giving you the problem it's giving you for different reasons, as I mentioned, it's definitely worth um pushing back. So if you were convicted a long time ago, if your offense was was minor or committed while you were you were a kid, um, you may still be able, by the way, to have your record expunged or sealed. Every jurisdiction is different and they have different rules um, who would be eligible for that. But if you're successful and they do seal or expunge your record after 10, let's say 10 years and you apply to the court for that, they have it in New York. It's called a relief from civil disabilities. So what, a person could just do that on their own, or do they need to get well, an attorney to I, do that? I think it's often useful to have an attorney doing that. Often your criminal lawyer, a public defender, or someone, it's not an enormous undertaking, but it probably would be helpful to have a lawyer know, knowing how to sort of do that application for you. But but then, if, it, if, it's, if you're able to do that and get your criminal record expunged or sealed, which is not easy, but if you can... If your employer, an employer, asks you on a on a uh, an application ever again, if you've ever been convicted of a crime, you can say legally, no, you haven't been, because it's been expunged. It's kind of like a do-over. So before starting a job search, if you have a criminal record, it's worth a little research to find out if this option is available to you in the state that um, you are in. But um, you know, the 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 news is pretty bleak generally federally. Now there are state laws. Each individual state. Um, does have a law, and by the way, um, the the I'm just looking at. Uh, well, let me just go back to a majority of states. A majority of states that allow employers to disqualify applicants with any kind of criminal record, um, regardless of how serious 
the criminal history, how long ago it occurred, or without even having to consider the applicant's work history, the applicant's qualifications, or personal circumstances in relation to the perhaps crummy job that's even being sought. Most states, most states even allow employers to deny employment to applicants who have been arrested but not convicted of a crime or, or a non-criminal offense uh, they pled guilty to that's not a crime, like a vehicle and traffic law uh, offense. Only 14 states, first of all, have legal standards governing public employers' considerations, not even private now, public employers. There are 14 states that um, require an individualized assessment of the applicant's qualifications and ability to do the job. So they can't just say, sorry, you're a predicate felon, we won't, don't even bother. Those states, by the way, are Colorado, Arizona, Florida, Connecticut, Hawaii, Kansas, Louisiana, Kentucky, Minnesota, New York, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and the state of Washington. Not much, because those, again, are just requiring that they actually talk to you, and it's only public employers such as, the, excuse me, the government, you know, municipalities, etc. Five states, only five states in the United States out of, what, 50, um, which is, by the way, those states are Hawaii, Kansas, New York, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin regulate private employers too. So as a result, because of this, the, the you know this, the awful situation of, and we'll talk about what these five states do, including New York in a moment, which is probably the most civilized thing that all states should do and federal law should require. But many of the 600,000 or so people who return from prisons and jails every freaking year in this country, 600,000 come out of jails, come out of prisons, and the tens of millions of other Americans with criminal records find it depressingly difficult to integrate back into their communities, contribute to their families, not too important, right, and resume life as productive members of the community, and that's the shame of it, because you can never... Happen, you're 17 years old and you're in, you know, and I could, and I could, and most of us can think, and if it weren't for white privilege, mm-hmm. I could think of several times in my youth where I'd still be chopping, you know, whatever, breaking concrete on the side of the road in Georgia if I weren't white. I mean, I, 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 I you know, remember the times on the side of the road with, you know, Georgia State Police, and it's like, how are you, sir? Oh, enjoy your trip, boys. And I know what we were doing in that car wouldn't have passed muster. And, and for you know, dumb teenagers, I mean, stuff happens all the time. They cut me a break. They cut you a female. There's female privilege and male privilege. How many, we've talked about this, times that you're pulled over by a cop when you're speeding, and you do get the kind of the, the girl privilege of just kind of, you know, oh, just sort of. Yeah, that never seems oh, to work it happens for me. To you. <laughs> okay, well, it happened for a couple of few decades, right? Not in a while. Well, more than it ha- never happened to me. Um, although I do think I was not arrested for drugs being exactly. a white person. Um, so, you know, and, and employees, by the way, who don't hire for, with people with criminal records, they give various reasons, and some of them legitimate. If you say, I have a fear of liability, fear of, you know, I'm concerned, I'll be sued for negligent hiring, or what about if they commit a new crime, blah, blah, blah. I mean, obviously an employer should take into account a person's criminal history to determine if the conviction is related to the job at hand, etc. And is this person, you know, rehabilitated? But but if you inflexibly ban all qualified people with criminal records from employment, first of all, it's depriving the employer of the opportunity to attract a big chunk of trained, highly motivated workers who are probably you could get it a song still, you know, who are ready, willing, and able to add value to the company. 
Um, and, and so employers should be required to make individualized determinations when considering hire, hiring people with criminal histories. So, you know, and, 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 and people with jobs, by the way, we talk about what makes the economy, you know, run and who the job creators are. And they're the people that where the demand is, people that have money to spend. People with jobs are less likely to commit crimes, except maybe the criminals on Wall Street, of course. But other than that, if you were otherwise, I mean, suicide rates, homicide rates, Crime rates go up when the economies take turns for the worse. Mm -hmm. And so somebody who's working that can support themselves makes sense. If we were spending money on our country and ourselves and our infrastructure and putting people to work at a living wage, there's plenty of money to go around that we're not actually keeping in our coffers. We wouldn't have all, we wouldn't have to have a sort of a penal, you know, what is the penal military, you know, penal complex, corporate complex that grows year by year Mm -hmm. because it you know, it keeps it keeps a, a whole lot of people employed, keeping people in jail. Um, so, uh, just in my liberal view, people with criminal records should be able to resume life as productive members of society and take care of themselves. Now, what about in the good news? If there's any good news about which states and what it should be like? Well, it's not as bad for people with arrest records in the five states I mentioned, including our own here in New York, and which has the best human rights law of all, New York State and New York City. And here, employers are prohibited from considering prior arrests, period, first of all. Can't even ask about it. So they can't say to you, have you ever been arrested? And you don't have to talk about the 14 times you were arrested for civil disobedience or even for drug crimes if you were never convicted. They can't ask about that. Um, and, and, and But they can ask you about open arrests, and they can also ask you in New York about your criminal history, meaning convictions, but they, can only, but they, they, they can only refuse to hire you or fire you based on a crim, previous criminal conviction if, one, there's a direct relationship between the prior conviction and the job for which you're applying. For example, your convicted of child abuse, you were convicted of child abuse, you're now applying to work at a school or a daycare center. Yes, they can say that. You know what? Not you, pal. I mean, we have other people to choose from, and you're too much of a risk. Or, I mean, even if you're, I guess, a serial thief or a predicate or recidivist thief, not someone who steals cereal, and then you go to work at and you... Um, you know, going to apply for a cashier position in a place. I mean, they might say this is a bit Anything of a risk to for you. Anything to do with money. <laughs> with primarily handling money, right. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, two, hiring you would pose an undue risk to property or to the safety of others in the workplace. Again, what does that mean? But they have to show that, you know what, you're a danger, you're a menace, we're not hiring you for this otherwise somewhat objectively sounding reason. In determining whether there is a direct relationship between your prior conviction and the job for which you're applying, this is what the employer must consider. Whether the prior conviction would affect your ability to perform your job duties and responsibilities, when the last conviction occurred, your age at the time of the conviction, makes sense, the seriousness of the crimes committed, whether there's any particular need to protect property, the public, or a specific group of people, and information provided regarding your rehabilitation. And, and, and so forth. And, and also, finally, whether you had something like the issue in New York when you apply for it and you've been clean, so to speak, or good or out of trouble for a while, a so-called certificate of relief from civil disabilities. It doesn't mean you no longer have, at least in New York, when you have this, that you could say, no, actually, I believe this doesn't mean you could say, no, I was never convicted before. But it does mean you can vote before when you couldn't. You, you know, you're no longer disenfranchised. 
and um, it, it's supposed to show that kind of rehabilitation, like, hello, I get a do-over here. Um, I could serve on a jury with that, and so forth. So, um, you know, I, again, back to the, they, we've been talking about on the show that more than 90% of us who work for a living have been losing economic ground since the 1980s, and most of us have clean records. So forget about the obvious steep incline you face when you're job hunting with a rap sheet, you know, following you around like an albatross, right? So, but the, the law does offer some protection, and again, where are those places most protection? New York, Hawaii, Kansas, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. But you'll still face an uphill battle. So, you know, part of the trick, and I'll say this, and we could leave. And, and it makes it difficult to even find an attorney because I know when we even look at some of those cases, you know, they're usually not. You know, you kind of have to be doing it because it's righteous and right. right. It's and, not because right. That's there's right. a big. Right. Well, there, it's not that it's exactly. Anybody. We just took a case, by the way. You know, because we argued about it back and forth. But we took a case with someone who has a prior criminal felony, violent felony conviction. I believe it was for armed robbery, but it was a long time ago. He paid his debt to society. He came off parole for many years. That's someone who actually pulled himself up yep. by his bootstraps. Yeah. And then there were other reasons. So, so it seemed to me that he's the perfectly righteous guy that, you know, that sometimes right. is worth fighting for. Right. So, you know, look, the last thing I say is staying, you know, I was, I was reading up on in some of the sites on advice to people with prior convictions. And one of the common threads was to stay positive. I know it might be, you know, I'd be upright your alley, though, Deb, right? You stay positive as part of the trick. And to take heart because CareerBuilder um, posted a recent survey that indicated that half of the responding companies reported that they had already knowingly hired someone with a criminal record. The hiring managers who responded to the survey recommended primarily that applicants with criminal records should be honest and straightforward about it, emphasizing what they've learned from their past. Um, and managers also recommend that applicants with criminal records should, this is kind of common sense, I suppose, but take opportunities to build their skills and resumes, do volunteer work, take classes, do vocational training in their field, freelance work, start a business, but to just never give up. And here's the one tip that um, comes up all the time. Never lie on an application mm -hmm. just because if they find out that you lied, they can refuse to hire you just because you lied. It doesn't matter. Even if two years later. That's right. That, that's right. That's right. Or ten years later right. that you lied on that. Or if they find out you lied on the last application, to, if they find out you're, you lied, they could say you're a liar. You lied about, you know, an arrest, your conviction, or or something. It's like giving them cause to terminate. Exactly, you. exactly. They can fire you for being untruthful. So there's no law against that, and you can't say it's because you're a right. person of color. So, but I bet a large percentage of the people who actually got hired with criminal records are white. Sure, probably tall white men under forty. Yeah, with blue eyes. And so women, too, white women, absolutely. So, listen, you know, on 420 Day, as we're, anyone out there is celebrating, just consider many of us are in prison or in jail because of something as, um, you know, really as innocuous and as, as troublesome that we imprison people still and pay for it, all of us, because of possessing and or consuming marijuana or sharing it with someone else or giving it to someone else. 
or selling it to someone else. Either way, if we're just talking about marijuana, which is, again, still considered as bad as every other drug, um, you know, hopefully we'll all stay active, join your local chapter of NORMAL, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and um, in the next election just vote for progressive candidates. Um, so if we don't have any callers waiting for us this week, we wanted to launch into uh, discussing religious discrimination yes. this week. Did we not? Yes, we did. Okay. And you know what? Um, it's been a topic. You're going to have to go a little faster than you okay. normally do. Okay. Well, let's just say this. And, you know, religious discrimination is pretty simple, actually, because it's mostly the same, unlike what we just talked about with criminal or like it is with sexual orientation discrimination or gender identity discrimination. Religious discrimination is pretty much the same across the board. Federal law, again, the same federal law that we just discussed, that we discussed each week when we're talking about workplace discrimination, this law known as Title VII. You can't be treated differently or unfavorably in the workplace because of your religious beliefs. I mean, that's a given. Whether that should be up to me, I would, you know, religion really wouldn't be a consideration at all. But we're in a religious nation, so-called, and we seem to give it, look, it's a, it is a top-protected, scrutinized classification, right, right up there with gender, race, mm -hmm. uh, and color. Um, and those beliefs, and here's the thing about it, which always gets us into trouble and makes it murky, and that case that was just argued in front of the Supreme Court is a perfect example we'll talk about, is that they're not just limited to the traditional organized religions found in Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Judaism, for example, although that's mostly what it comes down to, but it could be any sincerely held religious, ethical, or moral belief. So if you're a devout Pastafarian, okay, I mean, if you're a member of, and this is, you know, the, 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 the church of, what is that called? The, the church of the flying spaghetti monster. And I say this, and anyone, you know, if you, if you Google the church of the flying spaghetti monster, you will see it is a church that it may be a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the notion that we have a belief certain, you know, of a particular creator and so forth, and I don't, you know, know all of the... The, the specifics of their belief, but if you say, and the idea of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, or another church that says, we have, we, this group of people, fervently believe what in Christianity is provable, right, or what in other beliefs are based on faith. It's just that if you've got two billion people agreeing with you, then the belief is genuine. But why is anyone else's fervently held belief different from your organized religious one, which is why when we were back to where the corporations now have, we were arguing back in the Hobby Lobby case, a corporation has a religion such as Christianity, that corporation, according to our highest court, right, could, should be able to exercise that religion and say, but I don't, I'm not giving you contraceptives, lady, etc., or I'm a Christian pizza parlor, I'm not giving pizza to a gay wedding. The question is, what happens if it's not Christianity? What happens if it's the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster? What happens if it's, if it's, um, if, if it's Islam? And that's when a lot of these cases arise. Yeah, let's right? talk this, about the hijab. Okay, okay so let's really talk about the hijab. Okay, so if your company treats you differently because, first of all, also it's associational. If your company treats you differently beside your religion but because of who you're married to or associated with a particular individual who's associated with a religion, or, and they don't like that religion, that's illegal. They can't discriminate against you because your wife is, you know, Hindu, etc. 
um, or, or because you have a connection to a specific religious organization or religious group, even if it's not as an adherent, but you're connected to it, it's illegal for them to discriminate against you. So Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibits discrimination regarding any aspect of employment, again, pay, hiring, firing, promotions, etc., or any condition of employment based on your religion. And as it is with sex, and only as it is with sex under the law, it's illegal if you're harassed at work by offensive remarks about your religious beliefs or practices. Although this doesn't include what the courts call simple teasing, offhand comments, or isolated incidents. And that's always, of course, quite subjective and case specific. You know, if you call someone a dirty as we'll fill in the blank, is it a one one off or is it enough for the courts to go, whoa. So, you know, there are there are a lot of those sort of murky moments. But generally, simple teasing, offhand comments, isolated, you know, no one goes batty about that. It becomes illegal harassment when it's so frequent or severe that it creates a hostile or offensive work environment or when it results in an adverse employment action, such as your firing or your demotion, or when you suffer further hostility and backlash after you oppose the discrimination, right? right. You say, that's not right, so please don't say, talk. that's not right. That's not nice, right? And then oh, it gets yeah. worse. Yeah. Right. So, so, so okay, so we, we have that defined. Now, the harasser, who is the harasser? can be anybody. can be a supervisor. could be a coworker, Or it could even be a client or a customer. Um, Title VII also prohibits workplace segregation based on religion, which, which includes your religious attire and grooming practices, uh, such as assigning you to a non customer contact position because of feared or even actual customer preferences, they can't do that. So it would be the same as not hiring you because of your religion. They can't say we don't want to put her out there with that garb because there are too many, you know, fill in the blank, somebody that wouldn't like this person because of what they're wearing or how they look. They can't um, do that. So the law requires your employer or another covered entity, but your employer, to reasonably accommodate your religious beliefs or practices, unless doing so would cause more than a minimal burden on the operations of your employer's business. This means that the employer may be required to make reasonable adjustments to the work environment that will allow you to practice your religion. So generally, and how these things usually come up, for example, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you're scheduled to work on a Saturday, your employer would likely feel if you said, "Excuse me, I can't work on Saturday. I'm a Seventh-day well, Adventist." Except for that the, Walmart case, or, yeah, or the, the EEOC. Right. The guy worked for Walmart right. for 15 years. Um, for 15 years, he, you know, he couldn't work on Sunday. What was he? Uh, Mormon. Mormon. So all he did was Mormon things all day. No work. No housework. No anything. He was just in prayer, I guess, or whatever, all day. After 15 years. Walmart changed their policy and said that they no longer would accommodate his Sunday off. And if he wanted to keep working here, he'd have to work on Sunday. And he said, I love my job. I love the people I work with. I've been here forever. I cannot work. This is my religion. I cannot work on Sunday. And he filed with the EEOC, and the EEOC found for him, and Walmart lost. Right. Because... Well, Walmart should have lost. And Walmart says now they're changing their policy. That was like a boo-boo. I mean, they're saying that some moron, that, you know, cause, which obviously was because Walmart, when you look at the factors with 2 million employees. It, was, it should have been no problem to accommodate this guy having right. the day off. Right. And clearly, 
he clearly was. Right, right. This was not right. a makeup thing. Right. Although, although he's a Mormon, and I'll point out as they do on the website of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, that it wasn't long ago that Mormonism was about is taken as seriously as the Spaghetti Monster Church, and 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 the way it came into being is arguably just as fanciful, right? That's true. So okay, so either maybe a hundred years. Oh, either way, he was. It was a. It was a deeply held religious belief. Right. That over Just 15 like the years, absolutely, exactly, spend, exactly. You know, Thursday evening <laughs> exactly. with Eating the pasta. colander on their head, right? right. So, but, so, but that was a no-brainer. If you work for an employer with you know 15 employees and you're the only one, they need you on a Sunday. The question is, you know, again, how easily can they do it? Um, you know, so, so, so the flexible scheduling, voluntary shift substitutions, or swaps and job reassignments and modifications. Um, these are common religious accommodations. But, you know, don't expect the religious accommodation, you know, if you're asking for anything that your employer would consider to be an excess of the so-called minimal burden on its operations, as they'll resist in proportion to the burden. And the law is still conservative and places the onus on you, the employee, to prove a violation of the law. Right. So unless it would be an undue hardship, so-called, the same as always in the undue hardship when it comes to reasonable accommodations, unless it would be an undue hardship on your employer's business, they must reasonably accommodate your religious beliefs in terms of your, your dress or your grooming or the days off you need or wearing particular head coverings or other religious dress or certain hairstyles or facial hair or a prohibition against wearing certain kinds of garments such as pants or miniskirts, etc., or a silver colander in the case of you know, the Flying Spaghetti Monster Church. And the other case that we were going to talk about was the, what was the name of the company? Abercrombie. Abercrombie and Fitch, which owns, what is it, Hollister? Yeah, mm-hmm. the one, I think yes. it's Abercrombie. And so a woman, and this is already seven years ago, and it was just two, a month ago, I think, or maybe just two weeks last ago. Last month that it was just... Argued in the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. Even though, but but you know, again, the, the and this is be interesting for to hear what people you know have to think about this because. But what she did, she was 17. She heard about a job opening from a friend who worked right, there. Right. She went on the interview to the assistant manager of the store, wearing jeans and a T-shirt, and her hijab. Well, the jeans and the T-shirt is what first of all just to tell people is what they want people to wear. Oh, you know, right, right, right. And well, she had a fashion sense, and she was pretty. And she was, she had everything going for her. And she rated very well right. with personality, with all the things that Abercrombie looks for. And she was wearing her hijab during the interview. Which is really just a scarf on her it's head, right? It's just a scarf right. on her head. Right. And the assistant manager wrote down, you know, that she should be hired, told the manager and said, you know, she's great, she would, you know, good energy, good, you know, cute, perf, you know, style, and uh, she was dressed in alignment with what they call their lookbook, meaning these are the appropriate ways that employees must dress to project the, the image that Abercrombie or Hollister is trying to project. And, she, and the manager said, okay, and then she said, but I have to tell you, you know, she wears a scarf. And that manager said, well, you can't hire her because then the next person is going to paint themselves green and call that religion. You can't hire her. So this assistant manager, through the friend, told her she couldn't be hired because of her scarf. And it has taken all this time to go through, and it was just argued in front of the Supreme Court. Right. What makes this case really unique is all the smoking gun um, evidence, if you will. There's proof everywhere. 
you know, the she was wearing the scarf for the interview. She was dressed like a lookbook. She, the assistant manager, and what Sonia Sotomayor had said in the questioning was it was remarkable that this <coughs> assistant manager interviewing was mm. so honest about saying what she said about the scarf and things like that. And Abercrombie argued that they have a no-cap, so no-hat look uh, because it's too informal. And Ruth Ginsburg replied back to that, oh, so then you would ban yarmulkes? And, of course, they can't ban yarmulkes because, but then who knows if they have ever hired anybody wearing a yarmulke. Well, and they, well but the upshot isn't why it seems that the court will probably find in favor of the employee, is that the argument is, well, we're a cool, the argument of the corporation, the distillation of it was basically, we're a cool, happening, youth-oriented market. We hire young, attractive people that have to dress a certain way and look a certain way. So as long as we're sort of, you know, neutral about that, yes, what happens if we have... You know, as I think it started out with the Chief Justice asking, he said, this is yeah. not a joke. Four people apply to a job. One's an Orthodox Jew with a big beard, a big hat, and a wool coat, and the other one is and a, nun. All the, right, a nun and a habit. You know, what do you do? Do they all, can you say that you don't fit the dress code? And they said, yes, we have a dress code. Like Major League Baseball says, no beards or whatever they say. And the Yankees would still say, but we're going to entertain applications from free agents because they could come here and we could say, shave your beard. But at the court, first of all, the wildly religious, well, the, the people, the, the, the religious freaks on the court, the sort of the conservative, so-called, the reactionaries are always sort of knee-jerk in favor of religious freedom. So what would Scalia and the other four, how can they take an argument against that sort of free exercise of an individual of their religion and not expect when the law says in black and white, doesn't matter whether or not you have these rules now. It says, yeah, you might have no beards as a rule, but you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. Right, exactly. And so it would seem to me those conservative judges would also be wanting to protect people's right right. to be able to get a job wearing their scarves, having their beards. So it just depends which side they're going to fall on. And this court, obviously, they're going to fall on the side of the negotiators. well, who, the, the people, the individuals, the, who are you no, talking about? I mean, this court always sides for the, well, uh, the employer. For this time, no, but I know. But yeah, but the only reason because this one is so crystal clear that it, it's so crystal clear, as was the Walmart one, because they also stated, you know, this wasn't like, you know, they say, well, do we have to if we have the Hasidic Jew show up with his, you know, three-piece black wool coat in August and his unkempt beard and his hat? Do we have to hire him because he's not? No, you don't have to hire him for all kinds of other reasons other than he's an Orthodox Jew. She showed up, again, being attractive and hip and otherwise buying the whole strawberry rhubarb of the whole Hollister thing, except she was wearing this very pretty scarf on her head because she's a Muslim. And she didn't was, they even have her yeah, change colors. wear the store no, colors? She, she would change yeah. her colors to match whatever they were. So she was totally happening, and they were good with that for a while. She did that. She'd yeah. change her, her scarf color. So she would, and you could think if someone's like that. In fact, the diversity of that, even if you did have the Jew and the Muslim and the Hindu and everybody, or the Sikh, and they were, if they're, if they want, if the Sikh man is working there and he needs his big beard and his, I'm not what you would call the the turban on his head, but if he's otherwise a Hollister, you know, enthusiast, 
and and you know, as otherwise young and happy, that would be awesome, wouldn't that be an amount? It's like a gap campaign for diversity. I don't know what their problem is. So, it just would be one of those sort of fortunate, uh, just sort of just decisions by an otherwise a court that's inclined to not fine for employees because it has to do with religion. Right. Anything comes to do with religion seems to be, you know, we sort of fall. In, right, but I still say the opposite is even more powerful in that protecting one's right to practice their religion is more powerful than what than uh, being discriminated against by an employer Ooh. that they need to practice their religion which is really important and be able to get a job right but the question is always again when is your practice of your religion we did represent in this office before your time um, an orthodox jew who just happened to be kind of high maintenance and was working for a high tech company and he needed to and they were constantly sending him out um, to sites to he was a computer guy um, and he was always I, I can't work on which is you know understood they understood this I can't work on 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 the Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night but I also can't work in October because <laughs> he had all these there were a lot of and and they were saying after all you know well, we're under, we understand you're a Jew this is not you know we're in New York okay we're Jews we're going to accommodate you we hear you we get it but there comes a point where they're like you know okay there are so I'll tell you what. Here's what the here's what you can't make them do. If your request for a reasonable accommodation would would not pose the the, the, the famous undue hardship on your company, they must grant the accommodation. But if your accommodation request does you know pose an undue hardship, they're not required to accommodate. And that burden is defined as that if you're creating a scenario through your needs that is costly compromises workplace safety, decreases workplace efficiency, infringes on the rights of other employees, or requires other employees to do more than their share of potentially hazardous or burdensome work. It's very broad, right? Right. They could say, your religion is pain in our tuchus, okay? <laughs> right? I mean, and so that's where it is a balance that, you know, yes, you have to exercise your religion. Well, you know, then there's a tension probably in between the capitalism unvarnished. Right. So your best bet is to call a qualified employment lawyer to find out if you are being discriminated against or not. And don't quit. And definitely don't quit. Right. So if you are having to sort of cap today's show before you go roll and light your 420 blunt, you should consider calling um, any lawyer in your jurisdiction. Best to call... A, an attorney who knows um, where you work and or live with questions such as does my you know past criminal record will that impede or is it illegal because they're not considering me for a job or is my religion that I am like the Walmart person who loved and that Walmart person was I believe a manager at that point and this yeah. was a career yeah. that he had to give up and by the way, the settlement, as I read that, was fairly modest. modest. I believe about seventy thousand dollars for someone right. who gave up his career at Walmart. So, you know, due to their discriminatory practices. So, it's always best to keep our jobs right when we have it. It's best to fight for the job, not to call a lawyer and say, "I just want to sue you," which is always an uphill battle. But certainly, best to um, you know gather specific information from a qualified lawyer in your area about your particulars and not say, well, I heard it on a radio show or I read about it somewhere, and now I went and I filed before I met with a lawyer with my local um, state's 
discrimination um, agency or the EEOC because you're then right committing to action. Where and when you file can impact your future options, so you don't want to do it before you speak to an attorney. Exactly. And by the way, that is, we had just on that point, if you file with a state agency like in New York, if you file on your own, as people do every hour of every day with the New York State Division of Human Rights, lovely agency with lovely people, but it is, um, it will limit your um, your remedies. It will limit your ability to pursue the claim in the way that you probably want to. It will limit your ability to have a jury trial. It will limit your ability. You know what? I think we should do a show on explaining the EEOC, most you know, human rights commissions, divisions. You mean where they are and who they are and what they are? Yeah, and okay. you know the pros and the cons, and most and explaining what federal, state, city, the different right. laws. Right. I think we should do that next week. Okay, next week. So tune in next week, and you can find out. And if you call in, we'll we'll be able we'll have our list in front of us for your state, your city, your jurisdiction. Um, so you don't have to bother googling it or calling <laughs> or calling the National Employment <laughs> Lawyers Association. Um, but but either way, again, if you're if you work for an employer, oh, and one one other point with religious discrimination, this covers only employers with 15 or more employees. So if you happen to work for, and we were talking about Walmart, and the smaller the employer, the less required they are to accommodate you because they may be able to say we don't have the wherewithal to substitute in every two seconds someone to take you know your day off just because you want to be home practicing your religion. Um, but if there's less than 15 employees, you're not covered at all under the Civil Rights Act, and many of us do work for employers with less than 15 employees, but your local law likely requires less employees. Like in New York and Connecticut, it's four, and in New Jersey, it's one. So if you are, check if you're in a state that you should always know your state's human rights law for employment and what um, you know it requires. So that is what we will the show we will we will ha- we will be doing next week. You're going to produce it, right, Deb? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not next week. Okay. So, in the fact that we do we have do we have a okay. So for <laughs> sorry. Um, so that wraps it up for today. It wraps it up for today. This is Jack Tuckner and Deborah O'Rell, the women's rights and the workplace advocates, speaking to you from New York City and the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. Hope you enjoyed our show. If you have any questions anytime, feel free to email us. Come to our website at womensrightsny.com. Email me, Jack, Jack Tuckner, J. Tuckner, womensrightsny.com. And we look forward to being with you here next week when we will discuss the specifics of discrimination in your state. Until then, have a strong and powerful week. And don't quit. Don't quit your job. <laughs>